Tonight, we are going to try to continue our discussion on the very important, very important theme, the biblical theme of, of covenant. You may remember, if you can think past uh, the last couple of weeks we've had away, you may remember that we've been looking at some of the major unifying themes of the Bible. That is, that there are themes and patterns and ideas that appear throughout the Bible and function in a way that unifies all of it together. And we don't, we're not going to rehash all of the reasons why that is important tonight, but I do want to remind you of a big one, perhaps a way to show you how this can be practical. You probably know, uh, because you're part of the Wednesday crowd, right? You probably know that when you, when you read the Bible, you are interpreting the Bible, right? Whenever you're reading, you are you're interpreting. And that is, we're making decisions about whatever it is that we're reading. We're making decisions about what it means and hopefully how it applies to our lives, right? That's important. We're saying this is what God says and this is what that means for our life. But we have to remember Whenever we are reading, whenever we are interpreting, whenever we are applying, we need to be asking this important question. How does this fit with all that God has said? How does this verse fit with other verses? And, and you might know God has said quite a bit, right? He hasn't just given us one testament or one verse, or one chapter, or one book. He's actually given us more than 31,000 verses. I think it's 31,100 and something to, to be exact. But he's given us a lot. And I think it's safe to assume that if he's given us each one of these verses and each one of these words, that he would want us to read them all, and understand them all, and of course, interpret them all. And God does not lie. And so we can read each verse in light of the others. They're not going to contradict. That, that is, we need to read them in light of the whole. Okay, now this may sound a little abstract, but here's perhaps an example. Just the other day on social media, uh, I made a comment on, on my account about perseverance, right? Uh, I was talking about, the, the, the gist of it was I was trying to pick up something really heavy. I like to lift, I like to try to lift weights and, and uh, I was trying to pick up something heavier than anything I've ever done before and I was convinced I couldn't do it. I had this date on the calendar for a couple weeks and I was kept telling my wife, there's no way I'm not going to be able to pick it up. I know, I'm, maybe I shouldn't try. Maybe my back's hurting. I'm feeling sick. I don't want to try, right? And, and, I, and I went out and I did it and I was like shocked, right? And I was just thinking about the importance of persevering. And, 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 a, and a very well-meaning friend of mine commented on my, on my Facebook post. He said, yes, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? Now, I, I know exactly what this friend meant, right? And I, I appreciate it. But think about what's happening here. A student of the Bible is, has read a portion of the Bible and has interpreted the verse. He's gained meaning from it and he is now seeking to use that meaning to encourage me, to encourage me to think certain things, right? And it might seem that the implication is that I can go back out to my garage, take two more 45-pound plates, put one on each side, and just quote Philippians 4.13 and pick it up, right? Right? <laughs> 
And, and surely he, but I mean, but do you see what you see what's happening here? What uh, is that? What is meant here? Now, I think we know that that's not what that that verse means, and that most people would recognize that the only way we can read is that we have to read in light of other verses of the Bible. And Philippians 4.13 is a lot easier because there are verses in this case that come right before verse 14, namely verse 13 and 12, that tell us that when Paul is talking about doing all things through Christ who strengthens him, he's talking about learning to be content in all circumstances, right? That's a very different solution. In fact, the better application for my, my life would be would to be content when I fail at picking up, you know, the, the bar with a pitiful amount of weight, right? Paul isn't talking about weightlifting. Now, okay, now, I've made this sort of mistake reading the Bible all the time. And you probably have too. Because there's a lot in the Bible. And so, we want to be careful because whenever we make these mistakes, we're actually missing out on what God is saying. And not only that, but we might be making really serious mistakes. We might be believing things or speaking things that are not true. But I think most of the time it means we don't understand what's going on. We can't follow now, you know, this, this is an easy example right, where we just simply read the verse in its immediate context. But could there be places in the Bible where a verse's context is not just the verse before it and the verse after it? Right? Could, could it be that the context is much bigger? Well, I think there's a lot of these verses. For example, if you've ever read the New Testament and you come across a word like temple, well, that's a word that has meaning that is much bigger than whatever chapter and verse you're reading. Right? You've got to think about a lot of things when you read the word temple. Or what about the word Messiah? Or sacrifice? Or atonement? All of these things, all of these words, these ideas cannot be understood without the broad, big, deep, rich context of the whole Bible, including the Old Testament. So for our study tonight, let me just give you an example. You don't have to turn there. You'll have plenty of, plenty of opportunities to turn tonight. Uh, in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, which does this sort of thing all the time, we come to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 where we read, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay? Jesus guarantees a better covenant. So, if you are trying to read the Bible and understand the Bible, right, not just check it off your list, you've got to ask all sorts of questions, right? And I know I'm plucking this out of context, but bear with me, right? Uh, what sort of covenant is he talking about? What sort of covenant does he guarantee? And which covenant is it better than? And, of course, how is it better well, over the last five weeks of this series, which is probably the last 15 weeks, we have been looking and studying the major covenants of the Bible. We've studied a covenant of creation, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses or Israel, and then the covenant with David. And so now, finally, we come to the new covenant, which we will need a couple of weeks to think about. And it's really difficult to overstate how important the new covenant is to the New Testament. I mean, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's hard to overstate how important it is. 
Because if you're going to understand the gospel, you need to understand what the new covenant is. If you want to understand Christ and his teaching, if you want to understand any of Paul's writings, if you want to understand Hebrews, you got to understand what the new covenant is. And one of the things that we've seen is that the covenants have some sort of relationship between them. And it's a little complicated, so there might be times where you feel like you're just in a whirlwind. I'm sympathetic. But there's some sort of relationship between them that they seem to be, most of them seem to be connected how, somehow. And so one of the main goals that we've had, one of the things I've been trying to prepare you to do, is to answer a question like this. What is new about the new covenant? Could you answer that question? Huh? Okay. Well, hang on. All right? Yeah. Okay. So Graham can get started answering that question. That's good. But hopefully you can answer that question. And after, after we work through this, hopefully you'll be able to answer it, answer it well. How is it that the new covenant is better than previous covenants? And what does that mean about how we read the previous covenants? Do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Oh, we got really complicated questions here. That's part of the Old Covenant. There's lots of questions that come in to play here. It seems that one of the big challenges about asking questions like this, and maybe one of the temptations you're facing right now is, this doesn't seem relevant to my life, right? I've been there. Uh, You've been there, right? It, It can be tempting to think that. But hopefully, uh, you feel like you're getting the lay of the land. Maybe that's a good way to, to think about it. We're trying to keep the big picture in view. When I was in college, I had the chance to uh, study for a semester, a summer, in, in Madrid, Spain. And Madrid is like a big city, all right? bigger than I realized. I got there and I was like, whoa, <laughs> they have subways, right? And uh, so I found myself as a 20-year-old living in a, you know, in a metropolis. And, and my only form of transportation was the metro or the subway, which was really complex, right? If you've ever been to a big city, you know what this is like. And so I, of course, quickly discovered there are 13 lines, each of which is color-coded, each going in an opposite direction. And on these 13 lines, which overlap in all sorts of places, there are more than 300 stops. So if you know where you want to go, that does not mean you know how to get there. You have to study and think and, and work through it. Now, I had to figure out how to get from my apartment to the coffee, I mean the school, mainly the coffee place beside the school, right? And so there are a couple ways I could do that. I could just like ask somebody and tell me exactly, get off here, go do this, right? Or I could like look at the big map, right? Have you ever found, have you ever been in the unfortunate position of being in a mall? And you uh, try to figure out what's going on. So you find the big directory, right? You find the you are here dot. And then suddenly you can start making some decisions. And that's what we need to do. That's what it's like to study the covenants. It's like looking at the whole metro map. And the big picture will gradually enable you to make decisions about how to interpret the Bible. As it comes, comes up in individual texts. So my plan right now is to spend the next several weeks thinking about the new covenant. And the way we're going to do that, Lord willing, is to look at several big themes that are a part of the new covenant. I think that's the best. There's so many different 
threads that are woven into the, so it can be complicated. So we're going to try to do a couple of themes uh, and, and think about it like that. And so to begin this, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, which is perhaps the most prominent uh, New Covenant passage uh, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. There, and by the way, there are dozens, maybe hundreds, there are lots of references to the New Covenant under different terms. But let's start here. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's word. Now we'll pick up on lots of this as you know in coming weeks, uh, but tonight one of the first things I want you to notice about this passage is that when we think about the new covenant, you need to notice that Jeremiah makes it a big point to clarify that the new covenant is different. It is different. Do you see that there in verse thirty-two? What do we know about the new covenant? It is not like the old covenant. All right? So we need to keep that in mind. It's different and then specifically identifies which covenant he's talking about. And that's the covenant with Moses or the covenant with, with Israel. And so whatever the new covenant is, we can say it is different than the covenant with Israel. Now already, we can see that this is an important study. Because we have, how much, how much of the Old Testament is talking about Israel? Right? A lot? A lot. Can we agree? can we just agree a lot, right? And so uh, we've got to understand that Israel's relationship with God—that's what a covenant is—is is somehow, in some ways, different than how we relate to God. But how? Well, that's a big question, and that's the question we're trying to think about. So, for example, when you are faithfully reading your community Bible reading journal assignment and you open up to uh, the book of Numbers or the Ten Commandments or uh, soon we'll get to the Deuteronomic, 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 the curses and blessings in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomic. I can write the word. What's the word, Mark? Deuteronomic. Oh, yeah. Hey, appreciate it. Yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. No one knows what I'm talking about. The, co- the curses and the blessings in Deuteronomy, we've got to say, okay, how does that relate to me? Even when you come to a passage like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, right? We have to think, how does this relationship with Israel, the relationship Israel has with God, how does that relate to us, Right? What about our relationship with God is the same 
and what about it is different. Maybe we can, let's put it in another way. Does the gospel, does the coming of Christ affect how we read this passage? Or does the coming of Christ affect how we relate to God? Right? We would all say yes. So, let's jump into it. Tonight we're going to tackle one theme from the New Covenant. And that is this. The first theme for understanding the New Covenant is the importance of a new heart. A renewed heart. A new heart. As we study this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31... We read about this big difference in the new covenant, which is coming in in this perspective. Uh, We read about how the new covenant is different from the old. You can see it there in verse 32. In the old covenant, God took his people by the hand and led them out of Egypt. What is that talking about? The Exodus, right? Which is a major theme in the Bible. God led his people out of bondage of slavery. He delivered them. He saved them. He provided salvation in miraculous ways. He led them out of Egypt. Then he took them into the wilderness where he made the Mosaic Covenant. You have to refer back to that, but for now, we can think Ten Commandments, right? That's not all, but that's a big part. And there are really clear stipulations about this covenant with Israel. The gist of it is this. If God's people obeyed, God would be with them. He would live among them. He would go before them. They would have a good life. They would be blessed. If they disobeyed, it would not work. Right? And of course the problem, uh, there was a problem with this arrangement. Who is the problem with? God or Israel? Yeah. Right? Yeah, the problem was with Israel. They didn't and couldn't keep that covenant. Verse 32 says, they broke it. God had made a way for Israel to be with God. He made a way for it to almost, be, to, it makes us think back to Eden, where God dwelled among his people. God was making a way for that to be the case for Israel, where God dwelled among them. Right? In a tent, in a, in a tabernacle, in the ark, all these things. But they broke this covenant. He wrote it down on stone tablets. But the tablets, we could say, didn't work. Asterisk. Right? They didn't work. I guess one of the things we can learn already is that simply hearing the law is not enough to change hearts. You can hear sermons, you can read the Bible. That is not enough to change a heart. And that's what was missing. The law didn't change people. Here's more specifically, the law did not make anyone want to obey God. In fact, if you think about Israel's history, what does Israel's history tell us about how the people saw God and his law? Did they want to obey him? No. You know how I know that? Because they didn't obey him, right? They, I mean, they didn't really want to obey him because they didn't obey him. But the new covenant is going to fix this. God is going to give his law, right? His law is still coming. But this time he's not writing it on stones. What's he writing it on? Hearts. Okay, well, what does that mean? That's church language, right? Okay, well, let's, let's think about what that means. Verse 33 says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And then he has this covenant. This is the covenant refrain we see all throughout the Bible. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
So in the Old Covenant, think about it, this is very concrete, the law was external, right? It was on some rocks, written down. They could read it. They could hear it. It was external. But in the New Covenant, somehow, this law is internal. This phrase, and and we can see the result there at the end of verse 33, God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is language of a relationship. That is language of intimacy. That is language of joy and happiness where God is with his people, his people are with God, and there is communion. That's what that's like. That's the goal. That's the goal of the law and that was the goal of the covenants. Relationship with God. Did you know that that's one of the goals for the law? That's one of the purposes? To enable man to know how to live a holy life so that what? So that he can enjoy a relationship with God. Is that how the world thinks about law? (laughs) No. The law brings sadness and burdens and weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. But God's purpose was to get his people closer to him. To enable them to be holy. The law tells man how he can have relationship with God by living a holy life. And this is a critical point of application, right? I think that we, as gospel people, we want to be gospel people, we can run the risk of making light of sin. You ever done this? I have. We, We talk about grace, and we talk about it a lot, and we talk about it quick, don't we? And that's good. We, we want to do that, but the danger is making grace cheap. Of thinking, Jesus paid for my sin, therefore, so practically for me, my sin isn't that big of a deal. I mean, I mean it's a big deal, of course, right? Jesus died on the cross, you know, you know what I mean? But like, practically for me today, not that big of a deal. He's forgiven me. We would never say that, but you, you see that string... That attitude in your heart from time to time? Sure, we try to avoid sin, but if you fail, you know, you just ask for forgiveness. But what's missing here is a fear of God. A longing for holiness. For me, this has been a crucial discovery in my Christian life as I think about how to relate to the law. As a Christian... I've come to realize that the law is not how I gain or lose God's approval. Think about that. The law is not how we gain or lose God's approval. How has that happened? Christ has secured my righteousness for me. If you follow Christ, he secured your righteousness for you. So yes, we can sing righteousness, righteousness, righteousness is what you want for me. And you gave it to me, praise God, right? We can sing that. We can say that. But here's what you have to understand. Your obedience as a Christian does not establish the status of your relationship with God. Christ did that. However, your obedience as a Christian has everything to do with the quality of your relationship with God. You you tracking with me? Your obedience or your disobedience has everything to do with the quality of your relationship with God. 
My sin as a Christian does not ruin, praise God, my relationship with him, but it does hinder intimacy, doesn't it? Think about, if, if you're a parent, you think about your relationship with a child. My children, there's not, I mean, where I was disciplining the other day and I explained to one of my children, uh, the one that's a sinner, and I explained to, <laughs> I explained to this one, I said, uh, sinner, there's no, nothing that you can do that would ever make me stop loving you. But this, I didn't say this, but like, if, if all she or he did was sin, would that not have a dramatic impact on the quality of our relationship? If all he or she did was defy me, would that not hinder our intimacy? That's an imperfect illustration of what, of what goes on with the Lord. And we see this here in verse 33. The law was given so that God could be close to his people. And we who relate to God in Christ, we will enjoy, we will increasingly enjoy intimacy as we walk in obedience. So if you, if you feel far from God tonight, maybe one of the questions to ask, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, maybe a question you need to ask is, are there any areas in my life that I'm disobeying God? I think it's an important question. John 15, Jesus was speaking. He said, you know, if you abide, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There, this is a, I think a significant milestone in Christian discipleship that when you and I begin to see intimacy, intimacy with God as better than anything else. And when you realize that sin keeps you from that intimacy with God, you will start to say no to sin, not because just the law says so and you won't get in trouble, but because you want to be close to God. That's how you break the power of sin in your life. Sin loses its appeal. And so remember, this is the goal of covenant. It's relationship. And God is the one, not man, God is the one here seeking this relationship. And so he decides to give new hearts. Man, i got to keep moving. Flip over a page in your Bibles to Jeremiah 32, verse 39. Maybe a page, maybe two, if you've got large print. Three pages if you have giant print. 32, verse 39. Let's read another uh, New Covenant passage. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in being and doing good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and my soul. Now, hopefully, you notice several themes repeated, and some we will get to later, but you heard, right, there's a new heart coming, provided by God, and that new heart is going to fear God or obey God. And because it fears God, there's going to be blessing. Namely, they will not turn away anymore. People in the new covenant with this new covenant heart will not turn away from God anymore. But notice verse 41. This is what I want you to notice here. These promises are connected with a new home. Look at the verse. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. Okay. Track with me for a second. This might be the hardest thing I try to explain tonight. I don't know. Remember, Israel 
sinned and was exiled, right? They were divided and they were exiled. They were kicked out of the promised land just like God said he would do in the old covenant if they disobeyed. But God is promising to regather the exiles. What we need to see here is that part of the, the new covenant promises are connected with God's work of gathering in from the nations all of the exiles. So all of his people who are scattered, part of this new covenant promise is that when it happens, when these new hearts come, there's going to be a gathering, a return from the exile. Now, there are some people, there are, there are some people who think that this happened in 1948. That when the nation of Israel went back to its land and, and established a nation, an ethnic independent nation in the land of their ancestors, that this was fulfilled. But that doesn't work. Right? That doesn't make sense with the text, mainly because Israel still does not fear God. The, the nation of Israel still does not feel, fear God. They have still rejected Jesus as the Messiah, which is exactly opposite of what this verse is talking about. They haven't turned to Christ. And so I think that what Jeremiah is talking about is much, much bigger than just ethnic Israel. And we'll maybe get to that later. But for now, the important thing to see here is that this new covenant promise of a new heart will be accompanied by a return from exile. Or should we say a freedom from slavery. It will, be a, it will include a gathering of those who were lost from all of the nations. Okay? Store that away, and we'll, you'll, you'll get more light on that later. Let's look at another text. Flip over to Ezekiel. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Lamentations Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Another big New Covenant chapter. These are the big ones. Listen how beautiful this is. Ezekiel 36, verse 36. Oh, let's go 26. Okay, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. We got it? <laughs> Again, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, we'll just we'll stop there for now. Okay? Again, we have the language of the new heart. Hopefully you're seeing that. It's not a heart of stone. It's not like the stone that the 10 words, the 10 commandments were written on. It's a heart of flesh. And this new heart again in verse 27 is careful to obey God. And now do you see how this is this heart is different than Israel? Was Israel careful to obey God? No. Was Israel walking in God's statutes? No. But the new covenant people will. You see that? You see that here? What's the difference though? Well, verse 26 adds a new piece of insight for us. Verse 26, it says God will give a new spirit. And then in verse 27, he's even more explicit. He says, I'll, I will put my spirit within you. Whoa. Now we're starting to get an idea of how this is going to work. The Spirit of God will indwell the people of the New Covenant. Now we're going to talk about this more in future themes. But tonight, let's go ahead and notice this. 
It is the Spirit of God that enables human obedience. The Spirit of God is the necessary life in the, in the new heart that enables a person to obey God, to walk in their steps, in his steps. Just as there will never be an apple without an apple tree, neither will there ever be fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit. There is no joy, love, peace, kindness, faithfulness, self-control without the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone that enables you to keep God's law. Just think of it. We are dependent upon God even to obey God. If we didn't have the Spirit, think about how much God has to do to make this work, right? Like, <laughs> we need God to obey God. We can't even do that, even as, as Christians, without, without God. Which means that you will never, never on your own strength be able to conjure up some new effort for obedience. Friends, I, I know that, I, I would imagine that all of us who are here tonight that are Christians, we, we have struggles with sin that we've been wrestling with for a long time. You, you might have what I call a decade sin struggle. Something you've struggled with for a decade or two. There's some sins I have that I've had since I was born and I'm struggling with them. Selfishness. Pride. Long struggles. So let me ask you this. How much are you depending on God to get free? Think about your battle. I hope you're battling. How much are you praying? How much are you crying out for help? Maybe you're like the 20-year-old version of Nathan, which was convinced that if I could get enough self-control, if I could get enough discipline, I could stop sinning in certain ways. And man, I tried. Didn't work, right? I need the Spirit to have self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? I need God to obey. These are fruits of His work in us. Okay, let, let's, let's review what we've done so far and what we've seen in these texts, right? I, I think I can summarize this in three big observations so far. So far, we've seen this. Number one, human hearts are too messed up. They are too stony. So God must give His people new hearts, right? And these new hearts will be different than normal human hearts because they will want to obey God's law. Number two, we've also learned that these new hearts are somehow going to be connected with a return from exile or freedom from slavery. And we've got lots of questions about that we'll get to later. But number three, we're starting to see that these new hearts will be indwelled by God himself. By God the Holy Spirit. And in this new covenant, we're seeing God is going to fix the sin problem. Just think about that for a second. In the new covenant, God is going to fix the disobedience problem. Once for all. You talk about intimacy. You talk about relationship. God is going to dwell in the hearts of his people. But how in the world is all this going to happen? Well, the New Testament writers speak of this often, and it's a big deal, right? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 
Okay? Back to Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, if you look down, if you look at verses 8 through 12, they're probably marked off differently in your Bible. And that's because in verses 8 through 12, the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah's new covenant at length, right? I'm not going to read this again, but you'll notice this is the exact same language. You can see, especially in verse 10, this will sound familiar. He's, he's quoting it at length. And in fact, he likes it so much that just two chapters later in chapter 10, he quotes it again. The exact same prophecy. Again, he quotes it again. And if you look up there in verse 6, you'll notice what he's saying, the argument he's trying to make. Look at uh, verse 6. He says, this new covenant is way better than the old covenant. Why? The text says it is enacted on better promises. Do you see that there? Verse, in verse 6, it is enacted on better promises. Well, we can start to understand this now, right? Because we've been understanding, we've been studying this old covenant. We can see how it is better. In the old covenant, they had God's law etched on stone, which is priceless, right? But they had hearts of stone, which wouldn't obey. So there's a problem. In the new covenant, God provides a heart transplant for every Christian everywhere at all time. And these new hearts work better. Namely, they beat. They are alive, right? They are infinitely better. They want to obey. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he's talking about the good works of the Corinthians, and he says this, listen. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Does that sound familiar? Their lives have good deeds. They have fruit that are in such a way that they stand out as being different, as better. This clearly coming from a law that is not on stone, but from the living God. And then he says in verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, right? Not of the words, not of the, not of the words of the law. And then he says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. I mean, you hear what Paul said? These stone tablets are dangerous. They're deadly. The letters, the words, the commandments, they kill. Is there something wrong with the letters, right? Did God make a mistake? Of course not. The problem is with human hearts. And when human hearts come into contact with God's law, death ensues. Judgment, wrath come. But when humans are given a new heart, a heart that's indwelled by the Spirit, there's life. There's life. And friends, that's the huge takeaway for tonight. In the new covenant, the hearts of God's people are renewed by God's Spirit. Or to put it another way, and we'll move into some application here. To put it another way, to be a Christian, you must have a new heart. You must have a new heart. Now we're going to build on these principles in the future, but let's stop and think about two main applications here. Number one, we must understand what true conversion is. 
right? We, we're, we can already see Christ fulfilled the new covenant. We're going to get to that in more detail. Christ ushered in this new covenant for us, but we must understand what true conversion is. That God's people, those who are truly born again, do not simply make a decision to follow Jesus. Okay? I'm going to use some words that might make you uncomfortable. Let's think about it for a minute. You cannot merely make a decision to follow Jesus. Just like I cannot make a decision to have a new heart. It's not possible. They must be born again. And this, it's not a life choice. It's not a good decision. It's a miracle. New life is a miracle. And who gives it? God gives the new hearts. You don't ask to be put on the transplant list, right? Old hearts don't know they're sick. They don't want to be gone. They don't want new hearts. And so God graciously gives new hearts to his people. And then we want to obey. You have to have the new heart before you want to obey. See? Friends, we live in a culture, we live in a Christian culture that has confused a lot of this language about new birth. Living a good life is worthless if you don't have a new heart. Praying a prayer. Can we even say, asking Jesus into your heart, okay, is worthless if you don't have a new heart. Being baptized, getting back into church. I hear that all the time, right? I think I know what people, I just want such and such to get back into church. And yeah, that's great. It's wonderful to come here. But sometimes I want to be like, you know, getting back into church doesn't give anybody a new heart. And just talking with a lady recently who's having major problems with her daughter, who's a drug addict. And she just said, I just wish she would go back to being like she used to be. But she's not a believer. And I told this lady, I'm like, no, she needs to be saved, right? She needs to be saved. What good is it to be free of drugs if you don't have a new heart? It's so crucial to understand this because I believe there are thousands of people walking all around us who think they are saved, but they're not because they don't have a new heart. Do you want to know how someone has a new heart? Our study tonight will tell us. New hearts obey Jesus. Right? New hearts, a renewed heart wants to obey Jesus. Friends, I know that many of us, me included, have loved ones whom we are worried about their salvation. We, some of us have young children that we long to be saved. Some of us have young children or children that have perhaps made a profession of faith, but how in the world can we tell if they're genuine? How do we know? Well, we need to be clear about what conversion looks like. And we've seen tonight that God's people are God's people because God has given them a new heart. And these new hearts want to obey. And so whenever we see rebellion, whenever we see hardness of heart, whenever we see someone that does not have a sustained interest in submitting to God's law, and even when we see this in our own lives or in our spouses or in our children, that is reason to be concerned. Can we just say that? That's reason to be concerned for their salvation. These new hearts want to obey God. One other application that's closely connected here. In the struggle with sin, we need to remember that we can always obey. If you are a follower of Christ, you have this new heart. And this new heart has a desire to obey and the Spirit of God gives you the ability 
to obey. We've said new Christians have new, or Christians have new hearts that want to obey, but we all know, don't we? We don't always obey. Were you thinking about that? Was anybody thinking that? But I don't always obey, and I don't even always want to obey sometimes. Well, you see, that's because these renewed hearts, these good hearts, are in bodies of flesh that will die. Which means that as long as we're in the body, we will still struggle with sin. I encourage you to think over to Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 7. Do you remember how he, how he talks about this? He's agonizing. I mean, the Apostle Paul, agonizing over the struggle to obey. I mean, he wants to obey. Listen, you don't have to turn there. Remember he says, I delight in God's law in my inner being. But he also still sins. He says, but I do the very thing I don't want to do. The thing I hate is what I do. Then he says this, but I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my, in my body. You see, we can conclude, Christians have new hearts. And these new hearts want to obey God's law. But these new spiritual hearts are also bound up in flesh, which is under sin. And so we as Christians still sin. If you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Christ and you wonder why you see Christians that are hypocrites, it's because Christians still sin. In fact, every time we sin, we are not acting like Christians. Have you ever thought of that? Every time, in, that, in the moment that I sin, if you looked at my life, you could not tell that I was a Christian. But if I am a Christian, then my new heart will start working correctly. And I will come under conviction and I will do what all Christians do. It's the very definition of being a Christian. I will repent. That's what Christians do. I'll turn away from sin because I have a new heart and my new heart is repulsed and grieved by sin. And then I'll say with Paul, and if you're here tonight, Christian struggling sinner, would you listen and rejoice as I read these words and we'll close with these words. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For the law has done, for God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, by sending his own son. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. We don't, do we? We walk according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for the miracle of the new birth. We thank you and praise you that you have sent your Son in order to free us from the law of sin and death. Would you help us, O oh God, as we share the gospel and as we repent day after day, help us to think clearly on how you have given us new hearts and help us to walk and step with your spirit. We pray for those among us, especially in our church, that perhaps may, uh, may have made a profession of faith but do not have new hearts. 
Oh God, awaken them to the truth. Help us to speak boldly and with courageous love to all whom we are concerned about. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.